and welcome to Hello Human, a podcast to explore ideas and feature humans working in AI and technology. Sharika Ekbo, the Global Diversity and Inclusion Lead at Google for Artificial Intelligence, joins us today on the Hello Human podcast, where we discuss the latest topics in AI and how it's being applied in the real world. I'm John Nisley, the host of Hello Human and a longtime technologist helping companies win in the market with emerging technologies. A big thanks to Fortress IQ for sponsoring the program, and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode, we are going to explore battling bias in AI. Decisions around health, education, the workplace, and society in general suffer as a result of bias in AI. Addressing this challenge within and beyond the workplace includes exploring workplace equity and essential diversity and inclusion programs. Beyond the world of HR and technology, battling biases starts at a young age or with professional mentorship. This is part of a new series on the Hello Human podcast focused on women in AI. A big thanks to Elizabeth Miedelman for coming up with the idea for the series and spearheading the production. For the next 10 episodes, we are excited to celebrate and promote women at the front lines of AI and highlight the critical contributions they're making in the world and how they're paving the way for the next generation of female leaders. For this special episode, Fortress IQ's founder and CEO, Pankaj Chowdhury, and Sears producer, Elizabeth Miedelman, have a fascinating conversation with Google's Sharika Ekbo and explore some of the unique challenges, impact on society, and successful approaches for tackling bias in AI. Uh, well, Shrika, thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to be here on March 8th, International Women's Day, to kick off the Hello Human Women in AI series. I'm excited to celebrate women today and every day. My first question was, how did you get here? You've got a diverse background. I'm sure there are some incredible stories. You were at the CFPB during the Obama years, in diversity during the Trump years at the U.S. Digital Service. I'm sure there are some crazy stories there. But I'd just love to hear about how you made that transition from government and kind of you know how the world looked there from a DNI perspective into helping you know the world and big tech to to try and be better. Well, Pankaj, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to share this opportunity with you. Wow, how did I get here? That's a really good question. I actually want to start at the beginning because I am the product of two parents who immigrated here from the Caribbean. And, you know, with immigrant parents, they've always instilled the importance of education. And, you know, initially the thought was, do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or some of the typical fields that are, you know, shared with children at a very young age that are very prestigious, no less. And I always walked away with, I wanted to help people. And so for me, helping people was actually going in to be a nurse like my aunt until I realized I didn't like blood. And so that quickly went out the the window. But then I thought about how else I could help people. So I started my career at J.P. Morgan Chase in the finance space. And my thought was, okay, maybe I can, you know, help people with loans or very commercial like products that were tangible and that I could like, you know, create access for people. Did that for a couple of years, really ended up in our like back office operations for a number of um, products and, and did some asset and wealth management. And then transitioned into business school full time, which is where I developed my passion and love um, for human resources. And that human resources background and being in business school in Maryland at the University of Maryland's business school and so proximate to D.C. really opened up a world of opportunities for me to entertain government. And so with government being in our back door really, you know, gave me a chance to 
put a really microscopic lens on what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And so I entered the government workforce, the federal workforce, uh, with the Department of Homeland Security. I spent five years there. And what I will tell you is the government is a very mission-driven environment that really thrives on growth and development of others with a very aging work. The workforce was aging, right? And so there was a very concentrated effort on development of young talent and leaders who wanted to make a difference. And that's where I found my niche. I was able to kind of get in at the ground level with just my MBA and really grow my management and leadership um, capabilities there. I did that under the direction of our CFO, And I led a lot of her people operations because at that point I'm saying, okay, while I can help the Department of Homeland Security, let me go and tie it to something that I'm very connected to, which was finance from J.P. Morgan. So I went to work for the CFO. Well, shortly thereafter, I started asking myself, well, how can I help other people get into this mission driven work? I love serving. I love being able to think about, you know, policies and how they impact, you know, immigrants at ICE and some of the other agencies that DHS FEMA serves. And so I went into talent acquisition because the greatest way for me to share the gift of government and service is by allowing telling my story and allowing others to join me. And so got the opportunity to think about talent acquisition at a broader level and really at an agency level at CFPB. And as you can imagine, being at CFPB, the agency that President Obama at the time and Senator Warren started and being in those elevator banks with Senator Warren as she would kind of get us all, you know, excited about serving the American people and increasing financial literacy was like one of the highlights of my career. So for me, it was about building out talent pipelines, right? Internship programs, diversity and inclusion pipelines that could get more talent into serving the federal space. And so from there, another opportunity came to lead uh, people operations at the United States Digital Service. And with that came a lot of responsibility because as you noted, it was a very interesting time to serve under a non-Democrat, a Republican president. Let me just say what it is. A different president. A different president, president, right? (laughs) And so some of the policies were different. Of course, the players were different, but our mission was the same. And so what I really appreciated about the United States Digital Service was the opportunity to work with technologists who had come from the Valley, to work with government leaders who were, you know, very steadfast in their craft to really still provide digital services and improved offerings to folks in the military through the Defense Digital Service, through the VA to our veterans who have served our country and deserve so many benefits and support after their service, right? And so when I think about how I got here into big tech, it was listening to and seeing some of the trends in the workforce that got me inspired to think more critically about why the technological landscape and workforce looked the way it did. While at USDS, I did our first inaugural DNI plan and really realized a couple of key things. One, females rock. Our leadership team at that time was 60% female. So, right, I sat in the room with directors who looked like me. And so the men were in the minority for the first time, which is not normal for a tech company or agency, let alone one in government. So that was exciting. But the other thing that it was very obvious to me is that in our engineering um, community of practice, we had some gaps. 
And many of those gaps were around female representation as well as race and ethnic representation. And so we needed to find ways to get more Black plus representation, more Latinx representation, and more Indigenous representation in the engineering community of practice. So I did some research, looked at all the big tech annual reports and saw that they too had a representation challenge and really said, I want to go to a place that has infinite resources and can really help solve this problem at a macro level. That's Google. Big name, big dollars, big impact. And so that's what landed me where I am today. And so at this point, I have the pleasure of serving as um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion lead for our research and artificial intelligence space. And there's a lot of opportunity for growth and development, and we're definitely leading the way there. It's one of the things that's been fascinating for me, knowing a a lot of Googlers, friends uh, with Googlers. And there is definitely a special way of thinking of resources aren't limited, right? We usually come to a problem in this constrained mindset of, you know, well, we're limited to this resource or this resource. And it's actually, it's refreshing and sometimes terrifying when when the, the when that constraint is, is removed and you just kind of uh, see what the uh, a blue sky would, would hold. Interesting. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, selfishly, how someone like myself, so, you know, I'm a founder in, in, in technology and I've seen that, you know, over the last 12 months, we've seen really a sea change and what the definitions of the of all the characteristics of of DNI are, and then and, and kind of the uh, one of the, the the most interesting one is this concept that people would say, well, I'm not a racist, right? So being anti uh, being you know not a racist versus being anti racism versus being an ally, and so I I'd, I'd love to kind of get your view on how people like myself that have been fortunate in, in being kind of in these roles can be allies to not only people like you, but the people that you're trying to bring up also and create an environment where we can make sure that, you know, diversity, inclusion, and kind of equity are, are front and center in our, in our missions. Well, yeah, thanks for that question. And thanks for your partnership and allyship. I think over the last nine months or so, we've just seen a huge uptick in social unrest. We've seen black and brown people what I would say, terrorized. Um, We've seen images play across the media of people who are not afforded the luxury of de-escalation like some other groups, right? And so as a result of that, we step into this space where as a society, as a country, as a world, we have to step back and say, what's happening? Why is this happening? And what can we do to change it? And so the history of Black people and slavery and Jim Crow and everything else of this country definitely sets the stage for what we see today. So your question is really, what can you do as an ally? I think the first thing is really, we need to define what allyship is, right? And allyship is really around how we support folks who come from marginalized groups or historically underrepresented groups. And when I think about that, If you are not from one of those groups, allyship essentially is being able to use your social capital. It is being able to use your ability and influence to support someone from an underrepresented group in a way that gives them access and equity to things that you have as well. Right. So there's one thing for me to be a mentor for a young black woman who looks like me and try to create opportunities for her in the tech space where I am. 
But it's another thing to have someone who doesn't look like her. Let's say it's a male. Let's say it's a white man who can also champion and use his influence and circle and capital to support this woman and her goals as well. And so I really just think about some of the challenges that are faced when folks want to be allies. A lot of the things that I hear is, I don't know how. I don't know where to start. Sharika, tell me what to do. And so sometimes when people of color hear that, they are further burdened by the need to educate the majority, (laughs) which defeats the purpose, right? So what I will tell you is being at Google, we are really big on education, right? So we try to meet people exactly where they are, right? Are you at the beginning of your DEI journey, your diversity, equity, and inclusion journey? Or are you somewhere in the middle? Or are you one of those seasoned co-conspirators, right? Because there's a difference between allyship being a co-conspirator. A co-conspirator is someone who's not only willing to lend their network, but they also lend their actions. Like they will physically use their bodies and their minds and sacrifice that for others, right? So we have a number of co-conspirators in our workspace or ecosystem as well. But really it starts with defining what allyship is. It, it, It also takes an opportunity for allies to get together to understand what it is that they're willing to sacrifice. And then really it's an ongoing dialogue. There is no box to check and there is no formula to use that will give everyone the outcome that we're looking for. It is an iterative process and we have to understand where people are on the continuum so that we can then meet and create solutions to create a more inclusive environment. You talked a little bit about the history of it and kind of how it all starts, you know, kind of, you know, hundreds of of years ago. I'd like to kind of get your your thoughts on something a little bit more kind of near and dear to what what we're doing today in in AI and 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 STEM and and talk really about kind of education and and pipeline and and get your thoughts on you know what we can do to try and and you know address those those pipeline issues of women of underrepresented communities and in, in kind of science and, and and technology and what we can do there to kind of you know just increase exposure or whatever else we we need to do uh, to try and solve that problem. Yes, well, thank you for that because there are a couple of things that I feel very passionate about. One, I'm a mom of three, and so I live in the valley. And my son has been a direct beneficiary of my time at Google. And when I say that, I mean his elementary school partners with Google to provide coding support in kindergarten. (laughs) Wow. Okay. He had Googlers in his classroom, well, actually in the cafeteria, helping him with a scratch exercise in kindergarten. And I think about how fortunate we are to have that support. But I also think about my home community, which is Washington, D.C., where I grew up in the elementary school right on Georgia Avenue. And I did not have that support, did not have the computer access in the rooms. And so when you think about K through 12 and the opportunities that exist, I think there are a number of opportunities for tech companies, trade associations and nonprofits to partner very early on. I mean, and when I say K through 12, I mean K, right? Let's start them off (laughs) at kindergarten to learn more about the cool jobs that exist. I think a part of the issue with the partnerships is we don't allow kids to understand what it means to learn Scratch 
And then the type of job that you can have 20 years from now if you learn how to code or if you are an engineer. And a part of that is us not clearly understanding where the future is going to lead based on innovation and technology, right? So there's a gap there. But I do think that there are opportunities um, very similar to what we do at Google. We have a Explore CSR program. We have um, Code Next, where we have high schoolers come in to learn the basics about coding um, through mentorship with Googlers after school. We also have a component of that program where we have parents involved so that they understand and can learn how to support their high schoolers along this journey. Um, right. So there's a number of things that we can do in terms of partnerships um, at the K through 12 level. But I think that we have to go a step further. I'm a proud graduate of uh, Howard University, which is a historically black college and university. And All I knew is that the folks who were in our computer science program and in the School of Engineering were always busy, like heads down, heads down, heads down. Well, one of the things that I know is faculty at some of our historically black colleges and Hispanic serving institutions can also use a refresh on some of the latest technology and the curriculum. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. right. The technology is moving so quickly. It's lifelong learning. So we can also, you know benefit from these partnerships that we see a lot of large and medium-sized tech companies have with faculty development and professional development for that staff. Because I think if our faculty are upskilled, then that means that our students will actually benefit from that as well. And then the final thing I would say is there's always opportunity to kind of go to and partner with um, local foundations and organizations to do like summer camps or app development camps. I mean, some of the most um, heartwarming stories I hear from young women who are able to go to a camp that's two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, they have developed an app that's interactive, that's real, that's tangible, and that they can share with their families. And they didn't have that expectation coming into the camp. And so I just think that there's a number of uh, opportunities for us to help develop student identity and potential future careers, build the professional um, development and upskill our faculty at HBCUs and HSIs, and then do some, you know, local talent planning and really connect with some of our nonprofits to make sure that we have fun and engaging partnerships and activities for our kids. I want to thank you for your time. This was really uh, eye-opening for for me. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, Pankage. Take care. Sharika and Pankage, thank you again for joining us for our first episode of our special Women in AI series. Let's talk about women in tech. Industry diversity today is poor. The Boston Consulting Group reports that only around 15% of women work in data science in Europe, clearly showing a big gap for women in other marginalized groups. As a result of this bias, decisions around health, education, the workplace, and society in general suffer. How do you conquer this challenge of bias within and beyond the workspace? Thanks, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Bias is an age-old issue that a number of women and people of color experience in the workplace. Where do I begin? So I think that the first thing that we have to do when we think about bias is really educate our coworkers and our managers on what bias is. Gender bias is something that, you know, I've experienced um, in my time in the finance industry as well as in the tech industry. But I think the first thing is really kind of calling it out. So one thing that I appreciate about the, the environment that I'm in is we're very open with one another and we call it how we see it. And so if for some reason I feel like, you know, someone is not addressing me, 
although I'm in the room. I've seen, I've had examples where I've done a presentation and there are questions about the presentation, but they will ask my boss, who is a male, to answer the question instead of addressing the question towards me. Um, so, you know, when I see things like that, you know, you, you, you stay professional, but you bring that to the attention of your coworker, because I think calling it out sometimes is um, exactly what needs to happen in order for them to recognize their behavior, because sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's not. The second thing that I like to do, um, and this is an exercise or practice that I actually request of my HR leaders, which is to really do some sort of an analysis and assessment on pay, because doing a standardized pay assessment will really get at the root cause of any gender issues or gender bias issues that we may see. Unfortunately, we still work in a place where men are seen as the primary breadwinners. And as a result, their compensation may reflect that. Meanwhile, women are doing the same job and may not be compensated equally for the same work. Again, those types of evaluations and behaviors must be called out. But the one thing I will say is Mentorship and sponsorship has been something that has really, really played a role in trying to dispel some of this bias and really get to the root cause of it. While people may be comfortable being paired with someone from the same gender in some of these programs, we often find some of the greatest growth and it's bi-directional growth. So we see it with the sponsor or the sponsee when the gender is mixed because men and women, it is a fact that men and women think differently, but I think that we can learn a lot from one another. Um, if we address the issues head on, seek out, you know, mentors or sponsors who look differently than us and evaluate our overall people processes like hiring or pay inequities to make sure that we are not further influencing or encouraging gender bias. Yes, absolutely. Education about bias and looking at the data, you know, including looking at compensation, of course, mentorship are all extremely important. My greater question is, how do you go about explaining to people why this matters so much? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So we often have to talk about the business case, you know, for diversity. And a lot of it is centered around the opportunity to level the playing field and create products and services that are beneficial and accessible to everyone. So the reason why bias is something that we need to guard against is because bias in the workplace is really essentially just unfairly excluding someone from opportunities, even when they're qualified. And so in order for us to ensure that people show up in their most authentic and valuable self and way, we have to address bias head on. And I think the, the one thing to note is that sometimes bias is unconscious. But that leads to sexism and discrimination and stereotyping and things of that nature. And when we have that, it stunts innovation and it actually stunts overall growth. So it's something that we definitely want to ensure that we address head on. You touched on mentorship. And for women especially, we really understand the importance of a strong mentor, particularly starting at a young age. Did you receive any mentorship throughout your career journey? Oh, wow. Absolutely. And I think the success that I've achieved to date is in large part to the mentors who have been supporting me from the time I was a teenager. I was first paired with a mentor through my team ministry program at church. Um, and I was paired with someone who had the profession that I wanted, 
which was an attorney. I wanted to be an attorney. And so they said, oh, it would be great for you to connect with Vicky. She's a fantastic attorney. She's doing all the things that you wanted to do. She went to Howard. It'll be a great connection. And I'm happy to say that, you know, her, she and I are actually still connected to this day. But it's the mentorship that I've received very early on in my educational journey throughout my career journey that has helped me take a step back at critical points in my life to really evaluate where I was going against the goals that I had set out for myself. That mentorship also helped me to see more clearly some of the obstacles that were in front of me that I could not see because of my lack of industry experience or wisdom. But a more seasoned mentor could see these things because he you know, he or she had experienced these obstacles before. So, you know, mentorship has played a tremendous role in my success. And what I will tell you is I then take that mentorship relationship seriously. But more importantly, I see the value in providing mentorship for others. And so as a result, you know, I formally and informally mentor many women and men too. And really, it just depends on what mentorship uh, what they want to be mentored on. I have people that I connect with about motherhood. I mean, because people always think that mentorship has to be something so formal and it has to be all professional. And in fact, that's not the case. You know, we, we can talk about, you know, what it's like to be working from home and be the mother of three and still have a very demanding job and still be expected to produce and having a mentor to kind of vent with and share best practices with has been a very valuable resource for me. Those mentors, they really do help you realize so much, whether you're ultimately going to a specific field or profession, or even if you decide not to go into, you know, the attorney or legal field. It's amazing that you've been able to return the mentorship to so many other young women and other professionals. My question for you is, for the next generation of women in AI and tech leaders, what advice can you give? So there are a couple of things that I would say. The first is really enjoy the moment. I actually think that as being in this pandemic mode and having to work from home and having come out of, you know, lockdown and, and the, the scare of COVID-19 and the disproportional impact that it had on people of color, I just tell people to take a minute to be in the moment and give yourself some grace because so often we're expected to perform at the same rates that we were pre-COVID. And that may not be feasible for everyone to do. It really depends on your resources. So, but after you take that break and you enjoy and marvel in the moment that you're in, I would say chart a plan for where you want to go. The technology field is evolving. You know, when I think about all of the, the quantum research that's happening right now, when I think about the evolution of AI ethics that's happening and that has happened over the last five years, these topics were not as heavily discussed back in 2010 because they were new. They are continuing to evolve. So if you have some time to take stock of where you want to be, you may actually identify a career field that's evolving and identify mentors or sponsors who can help you get into that space. I think that when you do this assessment of where you want to go, you think about the skill sets that you already possess. Do you have the hardcore technical skills? Do you need to brush up on a new computing language? Do you need to work on your soft skills, how you present, how well you manage relationships, how well you manage up? 
there are key things that you need to do in this skill assessment in order to figure out how best you can leverage your skill sets going forward. And then finally, I would say, go for the goal. Take the risk. We are in a very constrained environment at the moment. I am glad to see that there is progress on the dissemination of the COVID-19 vaccines, which likely means that we're going to, you know, reopen and, and be fully operational within the next six to 12 months. But with that comes opportunity. Now is the time to chart your path so that you can seize the next opportunity. And that opportunity may include you taking risks. And what I tell folks all the time is it is okay to take risks, but make sure that they're calculated. And the way that you calculate the risks are based on what it is that you're willing to sacrifice, right? I look at when I think about a new career opportunity, you know, I ask myself about the scope of the work. I ask myself if it aligns with my values. I ask myself, who is the leader of that team? Do I identify with him or her and their thoughts? And then I also ask, will it help me get closer to my ultimate goal? If you know your goals, then you can assess your skills and then chart your path. Take calculated risks so that you will end up where you ultimately want to be. Go for the goal. That's a fantastic point to end on. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That's great insight and a great point to end on. To recap today's conversation with Sharika Ekbo, the Global Diversity and Inclusion Lead at Google for Artificial Intelligence. Bias in AI is real and crosses a number of dimensions. Many decisions around health, education, the workplace, and society in general suffer as a result of bias in technology and AI. Addressing this challenge within and beyond the workplace includes exploring workplace equity and essential diversity and inclusion programs. Beyond the world of HR and technology, battling biases starts at a young age and with professional mentorship. And one additional reminder, this is the first in our new special series on women in AI. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. So thank you, Sharika, for joining us today. And to Fortress IQ's founder and CEO, Pankaj Chowdhury, and Women in AI series producer, Elizabeth Miedelman, for organizing the program and leading the discussion. That's a wrap on today's show. Thank you for tuning in. And to Fortress IQ for sponsoring the program. I'm John Nisley, and this has been Hello Human. If you enjoyed this session, subscribe and check out our series at fortressiq.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Hello Human.